to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 62, Pope Pelagius. Ooh, Pelagius. Yes, it's Pope Pelagius I. He Pelagiarized his name from a heretic man. Why would you pick that? Well, he was born with it, so (laughs) we can't actually blame him for that, but he is the first of the Pope Pelagii, so, you know, I thought you might enjoy that, give you a little bit of cheer, because we enjoyed Pelagius, poor sad little Pelagius. I liked him, despite his heresy. Yeah, and it was interesting because just the other day I saw a priest on Twitter who was complaining about an article written by one of the church news sources and calling it too Pelagian. And I was like, wow, this is still a thing. So yeah, I can't give you any more details. It just was one of those things that I saw when I was scrolling on Twitter, but (laughs) (laughs) he's just like cackling in the background. So, So Pope Pelagius, we have left him in quite a state last time, so let's get into his life and find out what happened after that. So Pelagius was born into a wealthy noble Roman family, which is definitely becoming more of the norm, and his father was called John. Now, the Liber Pontificalis calls his father John the Vicar, And historians have taken that to mean that John might have been in charge of one of the larger Italian districts at the time, who would have been run by someone called a vicarious. But it is somewhat vague, because even some of the sources available are very vague. Like, an article from the Catholic Encyclopedia on Pelagius by Horace Kinderman says, quote, His father John seems to have been vicar of one of the two civil dioceses or districts into which Italy was then divided. And Duchenne's edition of the Liber Pontificalis is the same. So they don't actually elaborate on what those boundaries were or whether that was considered a civil role or a religious one, because as we know, the vicarious does become a religious role. But Regardless, it meant that Pelagius's father was in a position of administrative power and influence. So that's what we know. As for Pelagius himself, nothing's really known about his initial entry into the church, but he'd done so sometime prior to 536, which is when he starts appearing in the sources, accompanying Pope Agyptus to Constantinople on his diplomatic mission from Theodahad, to try and convince Justinian to call off the planned invasion of Italy. So, like his predecessor, Pelagius was serving as an apocrisarius in the Byzantine capital. More specifically, Pope Agyptus made Pelagius the papal nuncio, which is the ambassador for the Roman church, to Constantinople, since the pope was planning on leaving once he'd accomplished his task. But we know how that went, or if you don't, because you've missed that episode or forgot, Agyptus died suddenly in Constantinople. So he did not leave when he accomplished his mission. But he didn't really accomplish his mission either, so. 
It's also possible that Pelagius played a role in what went down with Pope Silverius. When Silverius was forcibly deposed and sent into exile through the scheming of Empress Theodora, Justinian had been petitioned by the Bishop of Patara, who was convinced of Silverius's innocence, and asked for Justinian to have him return to Italy for a fair trial. We covered this in his episode, but Justinian had been moved by the bishop and ordered that Silverius return for that express purpose. And as we know, Silverius was intercepted by Vigilius and his supporters and prevented him from returning by sending him into an even harsher exile. By murder. By murder. But Liberatus of Carthage, the author of the breviarium that we've used, suggests that the person that Vigilius sent to intercept Silverius might have been Pelagius. And if he wasn't sent by Vigilius directly, maybe he was sent by the Empress. So, our Pope is getting off to some scandalous start. Liberatus's account says that Pelagius's duty was to prevent him from getting to Italy, but he failed when Silverius landed in Naples, but that somehow Vigilius was able to construct a successful interception after that. Then Silverius dies by murder, and Vigilius is made Pope. And while all this is happening, Pelagius gets to hang out in Constantinople to act officially as the nuncio. I mean, okay. Is there a follow-up? You can't choose your boss. Mm -hmm. But also, what a terrible man to be nuncio for. <laughs> I know, right? It's, it's not exactly a great time to be nuncio either, with Justinian being so annoyed at Vigilius. Is it nuncio? Nuncio. Nuncio is fine. If you want to be very Latin about it, it's fine. But nuncio is fairly commonly said. Salve. Salve. Oh, there was another good one recently, and I was going to message you about it. Oh, I know what it was. I was listening to um, Saint's episode for QA, and you say pitcher. So funny. It's not picture. You say pitcher. I want to see a picture of this person. <laughs> and I love it. And you said pitcher so many times in that episode. I was like, is that Chicago accent coming out? Pitcher. So while serving in this role, Pelagius managed to make quite an impression on the emperor and was credited with having a good deal of influence over him. Or as some sources suggest, maybe even being his confidant. Ah, uh, because that's the confessions you want to hear. Yeah, of the emperor Justinian. Ooh, boy. Mm -hmm. Procopius would have died for that information. <laughs> I would hate being, like, the person that man talks to. Right? That would also be terrible. I also get the impression that Justinian is one of those guys who does not want to hear what you have to say. No, you have to be, like, a completely blank slate. Yeah, you have to be a yes man, for sure. Oh, well, how wise. What a deep, insightful experience, Emperor Justinian. Oh my, you know. He'll be like, this guy told me I was bad, and you have to be like, how dare. That guy is wrong. Exactly. That feels like what Justinian would be like. But he liked Pelagius, and he talked to Pelagius. And as a result, 
Pelagius was able to use his authority to select the next patriarch for Alexandria, who was Paul, a Chalcedonian Orthodox bishop. Okay, so so that's you can you can suffer a bit to get what you want. But Paul's whole situation was a little bit complicated. He was deposed by a synod in Gaza for maybe being involved in a murder. Well, we've already discussed murder's not that bad if you're a priest. It didn't really seem to be because then he got reinstated, you know, and then he dies. And Pelagius is also credited with choosing his successor again called Zoilus. Is Zoilus a less murdery man? A less murdery man, yes. <laughs> Anyways, we, we get this small tidbit about Paul from the Chronicle of Zachariah Rhetor who was the Bishop of Mytilene, Book 10, Chapter 1, Page 300. And it's pretty much the only source that seems to mention this little story, so unfortunately we don't know anything about said murder. But it does give us, like, a small perspective of what sort of influence Pelagius might have had in Constantinople and with the emperor and, and with the church if he's having a say in who the next patriarch is for a massive sea. So it's interesting. And we also know that Pelagius had a role to play in the renewal of the Originus crisis that we mentioned last week as being the sort of unintended inception point of the whole three chapters debacle. We've talked about this, but this is the conflict between the two groups of Originus monks in Palestine, the Isochristoi and the Protochistoi. So the Isochristoi, or those who would assume equality with Christ, strictly adhered to Origen's teachings on the pre-existence of souls, and through this understanding, they believed that all souls in the end time would be equal to Christ. And the Protochistoi vehemently condemned this belief as heresy and took a different position from Origen's teachings, which was Christ being the first created being, and therefore seemed fundamentally in the Antiochian school of thought, or, you know, Arianism or Nestorianism. So, the Isochristoi condemned the Protochistoi and vice versa, and there was that whole conflict. But the Protochistoi took the conflict to a new level when they approached Pelagius in an effort to get him to intervene with the emperor on their behalf and convince him to condemn the Isochristoi as heretics. Now, we don't know if Pelagius shared the Protochistoi sentiment, but he most definitely saw the benefit in having the Isochristoi condemned, and he did present to the emperor a series of writings that criticized the doctrine that the Isochristoi adhered to, like a letter from the current bishop of Constantinople, and anathemas that have been previously passed against Origen at previous councils by previous popes. Like we've talked about, they can't stop condemning Origen. It just... They just want to feel superior to this dude. Yeah, I don't know why they were so threatened with him. If it was like the self-imposed castration or something else, that they're just like, no, let's condemn Origen every hundred years so that we're sure. The ghost is not coming back. Pelagius' involvement led to the calling of a local synod, which condemned not only the doctrine of the Isochristoi, but 
Origen himself for being the source of corruptible teachings and heresy. The emperor demanded that all of Origen's texts be burned and that all Originist followers were heretics. And, and we know how this went over and how it was this synodal condemnation uh, against Origen that would lead to the attempted deflection on the part of more moderate Origen followers straight into the three chapters controversy. Now, in the same year as this synod, this local synod against Origen, Pelagius actually returns to Rome. This is 543. Though why he went at this particular time is somewhat unclear. You know, perhaps his success in having Origen condemned left him feeling like he'd finished all his pertinent, his pertinent business. Or maybe he just didn't want to be in Constantinople when the pressure ramped up to accept the edict against the three chapters. Because, as we will see, Pelagius is very much not in favor of that. He actually will actively encourage the Pope to stand against the Emperor's condemnation, which he initially did, as we saw in Vigilius's episode. Then, in 545, when Pope Vigilius was forcibly sent to Constantinople, being arrested in a church and then shipped off in a boat, to answer to Justinian for not recognizing the edict, Pelagius remained in Rome to essentially serve as the Pope's representative and take over all his duties of administration while Vigilius was de facto captive in Constantinople. Oh! Ooh, yes! Ooh! Bubs is so excited about this! Ooh! <laughs> Ooh! <laughs> Unfortunately for Pelagius, it was a pretty rotten time to be in charge of Rome. And this is where we have to take a short digression to talk about what's exactly going on with the Ostrogoths, because we haven't looked at them lately. No, we haven't looked at those Aryan barbarians. Yes. So, last week, we discussed how when Vigilius was shipped off to Constantinople, the people of Rome were not very sympathetic to him, and they threw rocks at his boat. Right. They blamed the scandalous Pope as being responsible for the horrible, desperate, and desolate conditions that the Romans were currently facing. And we also mentioned that this was mostly due to Totila, who had essentially become the next Ostrogothic king after Vitiges had been forcibly taken to Constantinople. There had been two other kings between Vitiges and Totila, called Ildabad and Eraric, but they don't last long enough and aren't important enough for us to bother going through them, so we're skipping over to Totila. And Totila is sieging Rome in much the same way that Vitiges had, but he was doing a significantly more successful job at it. So much so that he turned an absolute disaster for the Goths into a handful of victories, and it starts to look quite promising for those Ostrogoths, and now they're turning back around and they're rebuilding. And for clarity, we're going to call him Totilla because that's how he's referred to in all of our useful sources, like mainly Procopius, despite the fact that his actual Ostrogothic name was Baduila but he is always Totila in the sources. So, Totila and his forces had met the Byzantine forces and began winning victories in 541 and 542 using a sort of fast and small type policy 
where his armies would avoid the more heavily fortified and occupied cities, but in the process, they would take all of the small, less defended cities very unaware, quickly win them over, or raise them to the ground if it came to a siege. So, like, very quickly, they were able to win back significant territories in southern and central Italy, including Naples and Calabria. And by 545, he'd turned towards Rome and sieged the city from a garrison headquarters in Tivoli. As we know from Vitiges, Rome had now been under siege on and off for literal years, with disease and famine just decimating the population. We're talking buildings being destroyed, the catacombs have been plundered, and most importantly, the aqueducts that were responsible for the water in the city had been severed. Oh, boy. Yeah, Vitiges did that in 537, so it's not a good time. So the Romans in the city were forced to get their water supply from the Tiber River. What goes in the Tiber River? Everything else. All of the dead bodies and everything. So if they're getting their water source from the Tiber River, more disease is coming. And when Vigilius had attempted to send supply ships to Rome to alleviate strife in the city, the Goths had intercepted them and refortified themselves rather than the Romans. I mean, this is not a full podcast on the Ostrogothic Wars with the Byzantines, so without going into whole blow-by-blow account of the conflicts and the strategies, we still need to acknowledge that Totila's siege was successful twice. In the end of 545, the city was forced to capitulate to the Goths, and when they were let in, the city was plundered within an inch of its life. So, was there a lot for there to be plundered? No, that's why it was plundered within an inch of its life, because this is not the first, nor the second, nor the third sacking of Rome that we are talking about now. This is so far into that. I didn't think there was a lot left. There is not a lot left. There is not a lot of people left. There is not a lot of food left. But they're going to find literally anything and everything and take it away. And if they can't find anything, then they're just going to kill whatever people they find because that's at least some sport for them. So his army then withdrew and the city was, as much as it could given the circumstances, rebuilt and refortified with what they had. And when they finally rebuilt and refortified, they turned around and Totila was back on the march to come and take it again. So, you know, but you just built anything you were able to grow in that interim. He's coming back for it. So on the second attempt, the Goths were repelled by Belisarius, but it wasn't a total crushing defeat. So by 549, yes, that's four years now of this ongoing crisis, Totila was able to re-siege and recapture Rome, potentially because the people inside were so desperate by that point to have the siege lifted that some people actually did conspire to let the Goths in and just be done with it. And then the Goths killed all the men that they could find in the city. So, it was not a good time to be a Roman man. Jumping ahead to, like, complete this whole narrative, Totila would be defeated in 552 at the Battle of Taganae under the emperor's new general Narses, 
at which point the Byzantines had majority control of Italy, and Italy's back in the Roman Empire. So I'm sure that left the population just feeling so thrilled while they were all dead and dying and starving to death. I'm sure they're going, aha, we're back in the empire. How wonderful. So that's what ends up happening. But we're going to jump back a little bit to when Rome is in the middle of the sieging and the battles are going on because that's the environment that Pelagius finds himself in control of while the Pope is still being held in Constantinople, where we know he's going to basically stay aside from that brief escape attempt. So, again, the laity of Rome are starving to death, or dying of disease, or barely eking by in stages of rampant and utter poverty. And let's also not forget, during all of this, that the plague of Justinian had also killed up to 50 million people in the East, so food production across the whole of Europe is drastically decreased and pricing is out of control. Oh boy. World crisis level, right? So even as Rome is being reabsorbed into the empire, the empire can't help them recover any. They had nothing for themselves with this whole plague of Justinian thing. So they're looking at Rome as this outlying province that they've just won back and and they just they just can't be arsed. The term depopulated is used in conjunction with this siege and invasion, which is extremely fitting. Major cities in Italy are going to be in a state of decline for centuries after this point, with nothing but division and strife to follow. You could make an argument that Rome won't fully recover from this moment, how bad things have gotten, until the Renaissance. And we are so far from that. So, to this end, it was said that Pelagius poured both the church funds and his own personal fortune into whatever charitable relief efforts, wherever he could. And he even tried to make diplomatic intervention with Totila and tried very hard to persuade him to come to a truce with the Byzantine forces. He was never successful in getting Totila to agree. But when the city opened its gates to the Goths in 546, the sources credit Pelagius for persuading Totila not to kill everyone in the city, a little bit like Pope Leo. And it worked. I mean, they decimated the city, but not its people on that raid. And even though we know it was already pretty decimated. And as we mentioned a moment ago, he wasn't able to convince them not to kill everybody when they came back in 549. Because he wasn't there, but we'll get to that in a moment. Even though Pelagius wasn't able to get Totila to agree to terms with the Byzantines, the Ostrogothic king was still impressed by Pelagius's efforts and saw the potential advantage to a diplomatic approach. And so, instead of deciding to agree to peace talks, the king Totila decided he was going to send Pelagius back to Constantinople and convince Justinian to negotiate out a peace deal and hopefully end the Byzantine initiatives in Italy. So, you know, hey, you can't convince me to talk peace, but let me send you over to the big guy and see if you can convince him to just stop all of this. 
However, when Pelagius arrived, Justinian sent him back, almost right away, with a very clear message for Totilla that Belisarius was in command of Rome, and that was that. He was the only figure who could negotiate for anything, be it a truce or a surrender or whatever else, because Italy is currently in his command. No dice for Totilla, which also indicated a foregone conclusion that Totilla would inevitably lose which, of course, we know is true later on. Now, we say in this that Pelagius was sent back to Rome to deliver this message to Totilla, and that's possible and what's said in the sources, but it also may not be likely, because the next event that we see Pelagius involved in is also in Constantinople. So either he stayed in Constantinople and just sent a message to Totilla, or he was sent back to Rome to deliver said message, only to turn around and go back to Constantinople once again. So, either way, we know that Pelagius was in Constantinople at the time of the Second Council of Constantinople, saying Constantinople so many times in this paragraph. Istanbul is Constantinople. Istanbul and Constantinople. And it used to be Byzantium. (laughs) That doesn't rhyme. And for a brief period, it was Nova Roma, but we know that he was there for the council, and we know that he stood firm with the Pope in opposition to the condemnation of the three chapters and the boycott of the council. So he was in the city, he wasn't actually attending the council. He also likely participated in the drafting of Vigilius's first constitutum, then That was the one that denounced the council for proceeding without the Pope. But when Vigilius's secret correspondence with Justinian, promising to condemn the three chapters at a later date, came published, he lost his support from Pelagius. Although that didn't really prevent Pelagius from being arrested and imprisoned in a monastery while Vigilius was put under house arrest, since he was still part of the papal entourage. This is where we left him last time, being arrested when Vigilius becomes entirely discredited. And during this time that he was arrested and being held in a monastery, Vigilius issued his second constitutum, which was basically acquiescing to the condemnation of the three chapters. And he also excommunicated Pelagius. It was not a good time. He's like, hey, I have been arrested even though I don't support what you've done, and now you've excommunicated me too. Cool. And Pelagius remained in opposition for a while, even writing a treatise called On the Defense of the Chapters. But for whatever reasons we don't actually know, he eventually came around to accept the decrees of the council and was released from captivity at the same time that Vigilius was. So why Pelagius chose to accept the condemnation of the three chapters is up to a bit of debate here. The apologists would argue that his decision was based on a desire to protect the unity of the church, and that putting ecclesiastical divisions to bed was more important than defending some sort of pseudo-Nestorian doctrine. But the more skeptical, and probably more realistic sources, argue that it was to re-establish good graces with the emperor, since they'd had such a good relationship before. And considering what happens and where we're going with this, that seems more likely. Pelagius was able to leave Constantinople for Rome with the Pope, which must have been 
so awkward being like, hey, we're on this boat together. Remember when you excommunicated me? Hey. Yeah, it's me again. This is awkward. Oh my god, it would be the worst. Yeah, only for a little bit though, because we know that that Vagilius died on the way in Syracuse in June of 555, so they didn't get to spend that much time together. Pelagius carried on to Rome, arriving shortly thereafter Vigilius had died, and when news broke of Vigilius' death, word came in from Justinian that he very much wanted to see Pelagius installed as the new pope. No election, just, this is who your next pope is going to be, so make it happen. This is your new pope, here you go, it's Pelagius, I like him. And as you can imagine, the Roman clergy had some strong feelings about this. Not only was the emperor just interfering with the apostolic see again, and stomping all over their election rights, which were preserved in synodal law by Pope Symmachus in episode 53, but they also thought that it was probable that Pelagius had played a role in the death of Vigilius now. Not just that he might have had a role with the death of Silvarius, but now maybe he was also responsible for the death of Vigilius. I mean, mm, are you sure? Possible. I mean, he excommunicated Pelagius. This is a man who could sit through Emperor <laughs> Justinian. Yeah. Literal babbling. And and even though we have to remember, be clear here, it's not like Rome was upset that Vigilius was dead. They wanted nothing more to do with Vigilius. But they're like, oh, great, this is going to be the second pope in a row that might have had a hand in murdering their predecessor. Uh, we don't like this pattern, you know? And what's more, in the time that both Vigilius and Pelagius had been outside of Rome, there was another priest who'd been responsible for the governance and administration of Rome. This is a man called Moraeus. And this was who the majority of the Roman church actually wanted to see elected as the new pope. He had been there. He had done the job. And they liked him. And maybe he didn't murder anybody. So can we have Moraeus, please? However, this became less of a problem when Moraeus died only a month after Vigilius had. And so, you know, we're not dealing with an anti-pope situation. But this still didn't mean that they wanted Pelagius. So the majority of the Roman laity refused to hold communion with Pelagius at first. And it took until April of 556, ten months after the death of Vigilius, to even find a bishop who was willing to consecrate Pelagius as Pope. Remember, it was usually the Bishop of Ostia who had the honor of consecrating the new Pope, but because the bishop wouldn't get involved at all. They had to have him finally consecrated by the bishops John of Perusia, Bonus of Ferentius, and a priest of Ostia called Andrew. So, you know, they couldn't get the bishop of Ostia to do it, but they had a priest come to try and make it legit. Budget version? Yeah, budget version. So, he's finally consecrated. And so everything that we've talked about in the last... 30-odd minutes, was before he was Pope. And now he's off to a fairly rough start. And it's not going to get better immediately either, because even after his consecration, the resistance to his papacy remained. The Liber Pontificalis tells us, quote, 
Monasteries and multitude of wise and noble devout withdrew from communion, saying that he had a part in the death of Pope Vigilius, and therefore was punished with such trouble. I mean, the bishops in Tuscany immediately removed or prevented the addition of his names to their diptychs. Oh my god, where are these diptychs? They're in every single church, they have the diptychs! And you're supposed to put the Pope's name on the diptychs, and they're going, no. Are they still there? The diptychs? Yeah. In Tuscany? I mean, they're, yeah, most of these diptychs have been preserved, or at least writings about the diptychs have been preserved. There are ancient diptychs that exist. <laughs> I love how delighted you are about diptychs. Ancient diptychs. <laughs> Yeah, Pelagius doesn't get to be on the diptychs of Tuscany. Those Tuscan diptychs. So Liguria and Emilia under the Diocese of Milan, and Venice and Istria under the Diocese of Aquileia, all also refused to accept him. And when Pelagius was like, oh, hey, so these people are just not having me, and he turns to the new Byzantine general, Narses, and says, help. Help me enforce my validity as Pope. He found that Narses was a lot less interested in getting his forces involved for that kind of thing as maybe Belisarius would have been. So Pelagius realized fairly quickly that if he was going to overcome the rumors that are against his reputation, he's going to have to do so head on. And so, in St. Peter's, before the whole of the Roman clergy, and accompanied by Narses, who is now serving as the essential patrician of the city of Rome, Pelagius makes a public and solemn declaration of his innocence in Vigilius' death while holding the Gospels and the quote-unquote cross of Christ above his head. Here's the Liber Pontificalis account. Pelagius holding the Gospels and the cross of the Lord above his head mounted the pulpit and thus he satisfied all the people and the populace that he had done no harm to Vigilius. Likewise, Pelagius continued and said, I beg of you to grant my request that whoever deserves promotion in the holy city and is worthy of it, from a doorkeeper even to a bishop, should accept advancement through, though not for gold nor any promises, you all know that is simony. But whoever is taught in the works of God and leads a good life, we bid him not by bribes, but by honest conversation to rise unto the first rank. So, the second part is what followed the clergy's acceptance of his vow of innocence. So he gets up there, he holds a cross above his head, he holds the gospels in his hand, and he says, I am innocent, God strike me dead, if I am not. And they go, okay, fine. And then he makes this speech, which is his further desire to distance himself from scandal. So he's basically, you know, publicly condemning simony to remove doubt that this was the method he'd achieved his papacy. So, oh, you accept that I'm innocent now? Great. Simony is also bad. Just in case we weren't clear. And that's true. I mean, there isn't any indication that Pelagius bought the papacy, uh, but he definitely didn't get it from the most legitimate means either. But he is saying, simony is bad, I'm innocent of that, and so after all of this, the Roman clergy accepted him, and he wrote an encyclical to the Tuscan bishops, 
who kept his name off the diptychs to clarify his loyalty to the church and to orthodoxy and the ecumenical councils. And he condemns them as schismatics for their resistance of him. So you're not going to put my name on the diptychs? Well, you're schismatics now, so suck on that. But for now, he is generally accepted as Pope, and he has to get to the business of Popin. And, and because Rome is in such a destructive state of turmoil, he directs the majority of his efforts right to the city to, you know, restore public order, both civilly and within the church administration. Because, as we know, wherever there is devastation and ruin, there is always abuses of power. And so he holds several ecclesiastical tribunals to suppress and correct clerical misconducts. He also wanted to restore the church itself in terms of damage, property, and finances. And so he, he starts, like, actually rebuilding. And these restoration works were actually aided by Justinian, of all people, who had issued one of those pragmatic sanctions in 554 when he released Vigilius and granted Pelagius increased power to oversee civil administration. Now, before his papacy, we saw Pelagius as deeply invested in the poor and the suffering. So he continued to pour what little money the church had left into alleviating the poor and the suffering as a major priority. And at the same time, he appointed a new financial minister from the laity, who was a banker called Anastasius. It's me, Anastasius the banker. <laughs> we haven't had one of those in a while. Uh, we have not had an Anastasius in a while, and this one's a banker. And so he was appointed to essentially look at the church's books and put whatever he could write and then work at restoring the gold and silver vessels and other valuables to the church, if any of them could be found. And where he could, Pelagius also gave money to monasteries. He also begun the construction, uh, the construction of a new basilica of the apostles Philip and James, which is called San Apostoli today. But he had very little to actually do with it because it was near the end of his papacy, and he died very close to after the building started constructing, so we'll look more at that later. So things are going okay in Rome. He's rebuilding. He's trying. But just because he was accepted in Rome doesn't mean the rest of Italy was ready to embrace Pelagius as their new pope, particularly in northern Italy, where they had officially broken communion with Vigilius for the whole three-chapters debacle. He wrote to the bishops there to profess his commitment to the first four ecumenical councils of the church and to explain that the new decrees from the Second Council of Constantinople and the condemnation of the three chapters weren't in contravention of anything in the decrees of Chalcedon. But the bishops there are still very bitter with resentment over Vigilius and they're heavily suspicious and assumed that condemning the three chapters was a veiled attempt at encouraging Monophysites. Ironically, the reason that they put against him when they wrote back and said, hey, no, we don't agree with you, is because they went back and referenced Pelagius's previous book that he wrote when he was in prison called On the Defense of the Three Chapters. So they're citing his own previous work 
as discrediting his current self. So when they received these new letters of Pelagius trying to defend the condemnation, they're super stressed out because they're like, this is the same man who said the opposite. And the Bishop of Aquileia issued a confirmation that, no, if this is the way you're going, we are continuing to break communion with Rome. Then they decided to excommunicate the Patriarch Narses, seeing him as, like, the overruling hand of the emperor. And this really irritated Pelagius, who suggested to Narses that, you know, you could just use your might to end the schism, and if Paulinus, the bishop of Aquileia, was seized and suppressed, the other bishops might be cowed into submission. It's not a great look for the Pope, especially considering that's that they're already suspicious that he's going to do exactly that. But probably fortunately for him, Narcissus was way, way too busy with all sorts of political mess to even entertain the thought of getting involved with Aquileia. And so the North Italian schism would continue on to the 7th century, like we mentioned last week. But not all of his efforts in Italy were negative, because he managed to make a good impression on the army of all people. In his book, Religion and the Conduct of War, historian David Stewart Backrock tells us that Pelagius had received a request from a commander of the garrison of Civitavecchia asking for clerics to join and serve in the army so that they could perform sacrament and services for the soldiers as they did their soldiering things. So this commander had received permission from the emperor to make this request and was looking for a priest, a deacon, and a subdeacon to accompany his forces. And it turns out the Pope was more than willing to oblige and granted the privilege of military chaplains to be sent and serve even going so far as to conduct an investigation to find the right candidates who would be appropriate to be military chaplains. And so, he makes at least some good impressions in Italy. But it's still not great. Overall, though, Pelagius was definitely more successful in his attempts to overcome resistance to his papacy in Gaul by forging a very positive relationship with Kildebert, the Frankish king. Gildebert. Kildebert, yes. Some people say Childebert. Kildebert, not Gildebert. Childebert with the C-H. Mm, what a birdie name. They're all Berts up there. You get too far north and everybody's a Bert. It's true. Child Ebert. To set a clear record of his orthodoxy, Pelagius had initially sent the king a full confession of faith that outlined his adherence again to all of the five ecumenical councils as well as the Tome of Leo and the Chalcedonian Definition. And he gently suggests to the king that, with this knowledge, the king would be able to prevent any rumors about Pelagius to circulate in his territory, and, and that would help prevent schism. And then to appease the king, he also appointed the Bishop of Arles, who was called Salpitus, gives him the pallium again, and reconfirms his status as the Vicar of Gaul. And, yeah, I mean, we've seen this. This is an honor that many popes bestow on Arl, and so it's keeping with the tradition. And it served him quite well to do that by, you know, reinforcing the legacy of the apostolic succession and to make the king happy at the same time. And so, unlike Italy, the people of Gaul accepted Pelagius as pope. 
And this is the stage that he starts to see, okay, you know what? I'm accepted by the majority of the people that I'm going to rule over. Do you want to guess what he does next? No. <laughs> what does he do next? Die. Whoa! <laughs> I would have not guessed that at all. He's like, I am accepted. I can die happy. And then he did. Yeah, don't say things like that. So he died of natural causes on March 4th of 561 and was buried in St. Peter's the following day. His tomb was destroyed in the construction of New Peter's, of course, but his epitaph has survived. It says, Although this tomb covers an earthly body, it will not in the least detract from the merits of the saintly man. He lives in the vault of heaven, blessed in celestial light, but he lives here too, everywhere because of his pious deeds. He is certain to rise at the last judgment. Carried by the hand of the angel, he will be placed at the right hand of Christ. May the church of God enumerate all his good qualities, and may the coming generation prove equal to them. As a guardian of the apostolic faith, he brought to light the venerable people who lapsed through errors of schism, so that their souls might be in peace, enjoy true faith. He ordained many priests in accordance with the divine law, yet his hand was never sullied by bribery. He was eager to redeem his wealth. He shared the sorrows of others, put a limit on his own prosperity, and regarded the sufferings of his neighbors as his own. Here lies Pope Pelagius, who occupied the chair for four years, ten months, and eighteen days. So yeah, that's Pelagius. Now we gotta rate him. Papatum infallium. So he didn't get off to the greatest of starts. Most of the Roman clergy is refusing to accept him or consecrate him. And there are schisms in resistance to his papacy, so... To be fair, it was uh, a bit of a rocky couple of popes there. It was, it was. However, Justinian's pragmatic sanction increased the pope's temporal power significantly, giving him new rights and authority to establish a foundation for more civil power that we're going to see the popes ongoing having. And so... It, it was an expansion on the role where they've been cooperating with civil power, but now they're much more in control. So even though that's not necessarily of his doing, we need to consider that he has more civil power than a lot of popes did. Aside from that, he is known as the father of the poor and of his country for his efforts to relieve suffering, poverty, and famine, and to, to rebuild Rome. So this is going to have some lasting legacies in the recovery of Rome and the new financial strategies implemented under him increase and replenish the finances of the church a little bit and restores a significant amount of churches. So he did do a lot for Rome itself. And I have one quote to end on, which is, Few popes have led such a full life or worked against such formidable odds. So a nice quote for him. Yeah, uphill battle. He's a good trier. He is a good trier. It didn't start out great, but he tried. He got accepted. And Rome, which was really struggling, got at least a little okay under him. So it's it's worth something. What is that something? Um, you know, I kind of want to give him like a six or a seven. That's kind of where I was hanging out too. So I'll give him a six. All right. I'll give him a seven. Okay, he gets a 13. 
Fructus Prohibitum. He was rumored to have a role in Vigilius's death. So people were suspicious of him. And then when Justinian went, hey, here's your new pope, boom, people were more suspicious of him. Is that his own fault? I mean, it is a little. Because let, let's say he wasn't Justinian's best bro. Let's say he wasn't on the same boat as Vigilius right before Vigilius died. <laughs> I mean, it's a lot of happenstances. It is, it is. I don't personally believe that he had anything to do with Vigilius's death. But that doesn't mean he didn't have anything to do with Silvarius's death, because he was working under Vigilius at the time. So I'm going to give him one point for maybe being involved in that one, and then I'll give him one point for basically, by extension, being the reason that the Imperial side was basically extending itself in Rome. He he's he's the reason that the emperor just went, hey, this is your new pope. So I'm just going to give him a two. Okay. A two is good. So you're giving him a two as well? I'm giving him a two? Yeah, that'll give him a four. Seculari impactum. Okay, so we've given him negative points for this, but by restoring his relationship with Justinian, he becomes pope. And we see the emperor being responsible for the choice of the new pope, not the clergy. The temporal impact is greater than the papal one here, at least in the context of the whole empire. He maintains a semi-positive relationship with the new patrician of Rome, who is Narses, and he's restoring Rome, which would impact you even if you were not a Christian. So he gets a couple points here. I'm going to give him a four. Oh man, uh, no. I'm going to give him like a three. Okay, you can give him a three and he will get a seven. Fossium Sanctus. We have a couple photos to look at. Show me that picture. Picture, Fry. Picture. <laughs> picture. Okay, so here is the one we always write on, and um, it's different. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> so his beard immediately reminded me of, like, I don't know, are they Malamutes? What are they? Like a picture of, like, a really fluffy dog that's too fluffy? Oh, it definitely has floof. It is a floofy beard. There's something about his expression. It's like someone just called his name and he's like, what? Yeah, he's like, who? Who's talking to me? It's, I don't know, different. He's He's got some long flowing hair that we haven't seen in a bit. I don't know. It's, it's decent. I, I, I will give him points for the floof. Oh, he's, he's got some good cheekbones and an all right nose. He kind of makes me think of, like, Ted Danson. Oh, yeah, okay. But he's not smiling enough for me to, like, make that call. So, it's it's Michael the Demon, but as a, as a Pope man. So, I don't know. I don't remember him on Cheers. I don't remember a lot of Cheers. So like, oh, God, I've never watched Cheers. I don't know how much he smiled on Cheers. He has a very demonic smile. Yeah. If you if you imagine this pope giving that evil smile, I'd be like suspicious of you too. Yeah, Did you suspicious. kill? <laughs> yeah. So maybe for that, I'll I'll give him a six. A six? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, if his true form is a giant 
fire octopus squid. <laughs> Giant fire, fire squid. Can he get an extra point? You can give him a seven. Okay. All right. So he gets an extra point for being a fire squid, which gives <laughs> him a 3.25 when we put it into the calculator. And now I am going to show you images that look nothing like those ones. Nothing like Ted Danson. This this doesn't look anything like Ted Danson's, but these two I'm sending you together. I sent you a Jafif again. Deal. <laughs> How Open your dare picture. You. <laughs> oh boy. So they look uh nothing like the other one. Yeah, what this this guy's got a real frowny disattached puppet mouth. Yeah, he does and and it's weird because there is one more image I'm going to show you, and it is more consistent with these two, because these two are consistent to each other in a given way, shape, or form. But are you ready for the last one? No. Because it is different. Here is some angly-faced Russian man for you. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. So that looks nothing like... That looks nothing, yeah. It's the most realistic one we've seen so far. That's more Rasputin-y. He looks mad, and I, I'm seriously really wondering how they would shave exactly like that back in the I think the it's early. just his really sharp cheekbones. So sharp. They're so sharp that they're giving us, like, a dark shadow. Oh, yeah. Okay, fair enough. I mean, if we were rating on this photo, I would give him extra points for the contour, because that is a sharp cheekbone. But we're not. That contour is over-exaggerated. So over-exaggerated. That's the kind of person that if they were in a car accident and the airbag went off, they'd have this massive, like, mask print on the airbag because they have so much makeup on their face. You gotta set that. You gotta set that makeup. Mm-hmm. Tempus Pontificus. April 16th of 556 to March 4th of 561. Five years, a score of 1.25. All right, everybody, it's the cannon bonus round! Do, 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 do. He is not a saint. Moving on. <laughs> All right. His total score, though, is a 28.5, which means, despite all of Vigilius's scandal, Pelagius has now outscored him by 0.5 points. Half a point. Which makes me happy. I like that, because... Oh, it was the bonus point you gave him for being a fire squid. Uh-huh. Perfect. Perfect. So, on that, I have a question for you. Fry, do you think that Pelagius is popey enough and pizzazzy enough and impactful enough for a papal bull? No. I don't know where that was going. Was getting... No, 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 no. 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 No, I'm not feeling it either. Which is sad, because I just wanted to give it to him for being called Pelagius. We don't want any, no thank you. No, I'm not about that. So, yeah. On that note, we have thank yous to make, because we have patrons who would like to be absolved of their temporal sins. So we would like to thank and absolve Joseph Malthy and William Quill. Ego te absolvo. And we'd like to thank Richard... Again, again, first book that I quoted in this episode, so huzzah. And 
We'd like to thank uh, Partial Historians, who shouted out to us and, and recommended us on Twitter again, and... Small Bean! Small Bean tweeted about us, and he also um, talked about us in his sound education recap, where he was a lot more oblique to some of our inside jokes, and we're just like, we're old bitties and you're small bean! <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true. Look... If they expected anything less from us. <laughs> I will also point out that in our group chat, you are called potato because you are a fry and I'm called cheese because I breathe and he's small bean. Small bean. <laughs> yeah, so there's that. Also, okay, we always thank Rex Factor and Dotellus Rankio, but oh my gosh, we have to thank Rob because he made us out of Lego. Yeah, that was wild. I would love like a real Lego of me. I would love that. That's so cool. Maybe maybe we can take that design and then like send it into that custom Lego website and be like this. Make us this. They're expensive as heck, man. One of the kids that I work with, who I take to Lego school every Thursday, that is all he wants in life is, like, the custom Lego. And they're, like, 30 bucks a piece, but hey. I mean, sometimes you just have to get a Lego of your own self. Yeah, especially when it's so beautifully rendered. He clearly looked at photos from Sound Education because you have your purple hair. I was wearing my purple dress uh, that had witchy cauldrons all over it, and he's rendered that in a way that totally works. And he put my blonde streak in, man. Super cool. I love it. So thank you, Rob. That was super fun. But on that note, we can wrap up and say thank you all for listening, as always. And goodbye. Bye. 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 Swamp bean, we're all bitties. <laughs>